Lord, thank you for Sam. Thank you for his ministry here. Thank you for the word you've laid on his heart for this morning. Lord, help him to communicate it, flow through him by the power of your spirit, and help us to hear and take on board and be encouraged by what he brings to us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, hello. Hi to those of you who are always here, and hi to those of you who I don't even know at all. It's great to see you all here, Um, and presumably you're here either because you love Jesus or Jenny, or probably in lots of cases both. Um, I won't ask for a show of hands, but that's great. Um, So welcome, 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 and um, I'm really excited for lunch, basically. Um, So there are some perks uh, to Jenny going, but only one, and that's the food on today. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's already been said so many times. Um, but my gosh, we're going to miss Jenny, aren't we? Um, and we're all being, we've all been so touched by her, by her, by her peace as a person, by her wisdom. Um, there have been a number of times where, uh, you know, I've done something that's a little bit stupid, and, and Jenny's just been a very calm, hmm, <laughs> leveling, leveling force um, in the room, and I'm so grateful for her, and so grateful for all that she's been to me as well over the last, how long have I been here? Eight years. Um, so thanks so much. We're going to miss you. Um, great. We're on a journey through the prophet Micah. Woohoo! Um, so uh, if you're regular with us, then you'll know all about Micah up to this stage. Um, if you're new today, congratulations. You just get to join in with today's little bit. Um, and basically, we've been looking at the prophet Micah for about four weeks, I think, or five, five maybe, something like that. Um, and we've been looking at the parts of Micah where he prophesied basically against the people of Israel, um, against the corruption in the power structures of the people, against the corruption in the religious structures, against the corruption in the trade structures, um, and against the way that the people of God, who should have been representing the kingdom of God to the world, weren't doing that. Instead, they were just living for themselves, and the poor got downtrodden um, and left out, and religion was for those special people over there those priests, um, and it was kind of cut off from the rest of the people, and they were abusing the poor and abusing power, um, and it was pretty bad, really. And so Micah spoke to the people of Israel, and he basically said this, if you don't sort your ways out, God is going to send you into exile. The, king, the kingdom of Assyria is going to come and invade the north, the kingdom of Babylon is going to come and invade the south, and you're all going to be carried off, um, and da 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 that's it. Game over for the, for, the, for the plan of God through the people of Israel as it currently was then. And so what you find is Micah prophesies that this is going to lead to exile. But then all the way through the book, and particularly what we're going to focus on for the next few weeks, there's also this message of hope that keeps coming back in. That even when it looks like God is completely done, completely finished, completely had enough, where is God anyway? Because we cry out to him and we're still uh, being marched off into exile in Babylon. Um, Where is he? There's all the time through the prophet Micah, there's these messages of hope. And so it's not by accident that we come to one of the three kind of clearest messages of hope in the book of Micah that are going to walk us through Advent together. Isn't that cool? Um, As they look to to this day that's going to come when the Messiah is going to come and bring healing to the land and bring healing to the people um, and bring healing really to the world. But the question is, how is he going to do it? How is God going to do it? More than that, because it, it wouldn't be that hard for God just to restore a people. 
But what it's going to be hard to do is for him to restore a people in such a way that the same mistakes and the same traps and the same failings and the same corruption doesn't happen again. This is going to need to be something new. It's going to need to be something fresh. So how is God going to do that? So we've kind of come to this point today um, where we're looking at these passages of hope for a people who were currently in a situation of exile. For a people who looked at the world and thought, it doesn't look that much like the kingdom of God is right here. Does anyone feel like they ever look at the world like that? Or who look at their own life and think, I don't always see the fulfillment of being a child of God in my everyday life. I don't see all my attitudes totally sorted out. I don't see all my relationships totally reconciled. Does anyone feel a bit like that? And so the challenge comes to us. How do we be a people in exile who are expectant, who are waiting, who are hoping, and who understand what that, some of what that hope entails? So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Isn't that cool? Because really, though it's a message to people 2,500 years ago, it's just as much a message to every one of us in this room today. It's just as much a message to the United Kingdom and to Europe and to the world and to everywhere, to the cosmos. Glory. Okay, ready? So um, if you have a look, if you have Micah um, open in front of you in a Bible or a phone or something like that, um, then that would be really useful. But I've got some of the passage um, that's going to come up on here. Um, Where we've just been... Uh, we haven't really done the book in order. Sorry about that, everyone. Um, and it's because we wanted to keep all these lovely juicy bits to the end. Um, so we've done kind of Micah 1, Micah 2 and 3, and then we skipped ahead to Micah 6, and then we did Micah 7, and now we're back to Micah 4. Whoa. Um, and if you look at the beginning of chapter 4, um, it starts like this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and many peoples will stream to it. Okay, so what that's talking about is um, Jerusalem, a city that was ransacked and raised to the ground by Babylon when they invaded. And God is saying, just as that used to be a center point um, for my work in the world, something is going to happen in Jerusalem that makes it again a center point for God's salvation in the world. Isn't that cool? I wonder what it's going to be. But let's have a look back just for a moment to the last verses in chapter 3. You ready? Uh, If you've got it open um, in front of you, chapter 3, verse 12 says this. Therefore, because of you, Zion, that's uh, Mount Zion, like the mountain of the temple, will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Do you see the flow there? One verse he's saying, because of your sin and wickedness and rebellion and how much you've turned against God, Jerusalem is going to be raised to the ground, the temple is going to be destroyed, it's going to be awful, you're going to go into exile, blur. And then the very next verse is a message of hope. Isn't that cool? The very next verse, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple, which has just been destroyed in the previous verse, will be established as chief among the mountains. And it will be raised up. It won't be humiliated anymore. It will be raised up and peoples will stream to it. Um, yeah. Now, imagine, imagine how this would come across to you as an ancient um, Israelite. Um, were they still called Israelites? Someone, someone will know that. But you know who I mean. 
Um, so you're all with me. So uh, as someone who lives in Jerusalem or in the land of Judah in that time, and what's being prophesied to you by the prophet Micah is the complete destruction of your hometown and that you're going to exile. And you know somewhere in your heart, we are the people of God and God's going to do something about it. So now you're waiting. Okay, so Micah, what's God going to do to restore me? What's God going to do to bring me back home after he leads me into exile? What's God going to do for me, for my people, for my towns? What's he going to do to restore what was taken from me, to kick my enemies in the teeth who, brought, who took me into exile? What's he going to do? And now spot the curveball in this Micah's kind of opening passage on what the Messianic age is going to be like. He doesn't talk about the people of Israel at all. Do you get this? In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. Okay, so there's, a, there's some kind of a center. There's the worship. There's the temple. It will be raised above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. It's talking about other people than the people of Israel. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in, this path, in his paths. Isn't that interesting? The people this text is written to are not mentioned when, when the Messianic age is, begins to be talked about in the Bible. Isn't that weird? Because they would have been like, hey, this is, this is our story. We're looking for God's salvation for us. Is what we really all do, isn't it? We want God's salvation for us. And what Micah says is it's just as much about your enemies as it is about you. It's just as much about those you hate as it is about you. Do you hear the shock in that? Do you feel like the, the, that kind of grating against you? As God says, it's just as much about the other as it is about you. Um, so, so it goes on. Come, many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Now, just to clarify, the main problem that Israel had in those days seemed to be that many nations kept coming. This is not a nice thing to hear if all you ever, if you're only encounters with other nations are they keep coming to Jerusalem and killing it and burning it down. Stop it. So, so when God says, hey, I've got this great future planned, they're all going to come. Only this time they're going to come and worship. More than that, they're going to come and be, inc- like, they're going to be awesome. They say he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. It's, I think it, it's a kind of harking back um, to, to Moses praying to God, show me your ways um, that I may know you, that I may walk in your paths. He's, he's kind of calling back um, to that. Um, so really, really interesting. But this is actually a constant theme all the way through Scripture. That God is never just about us. He's never just about the church. He's never just about one people. He's always offensively about everyone who's not in this room. And all the people that we don't want to be in this room. He's always about them. This comes through, doesn't it, in the prophet Jonah. God says, go to Nineveh and, and, and speak to them and teach them um, about, about me, about my ways. And Jonah doesn't want to go. And all the way through primary school and Sunday school, we're taught that the reason Jonah doesn't want to go is that he's afraid of the Ninevites. Nuh-uh. He doesn't want to go because he hates them. And the worst nightmare for Jonah is that they repent, turn to the Lord, and then find salvation. So So he says, no, God, and goes the opposite way and runs away from the plan of the Lord. He's not afraid. He's just racist. And it's a, it's a key theme that keeps going through. Isaiah 19, um, 
uh, is this passage in Isaiah that's like talking about judgment to Egypt. Now, Israel's relationships with Egypt were never particularly good, okay? From the beginning, where were they in slavery? Egypt. That's basically how the relationship kept on in terms of positive terms, right? They weren't, they weren't generally friends. And so in Isaiah 19, there's this amazing prophecy that's like against the people of Egypt. And, and, and God says, this is all the things I'm going to judge about the people of Egypt. And then and they, it also does it about Assyria, um, which was the nation in the north who kept attacking Israel. And it was like a major issue for them. And then right at the end of Isaiah 19... <laughs> Isaiah gets the prophetic word from God that's this. I'm going to make a highway between Egypt, Assyria, and Jerusalem. And I can't, I can't remember the wording, but he's like, and I will call them Egypt, my handiwork, Assyria, my people, and Israel, my inheritance. <gasps> So our enemies are the handiwork of the Lord. Our enemies are those he loves and pours out his love on and wants to include and envelop in this generous kingdom. It carries on. When Jesus begins his ministry in Luke 4, he stands up in in the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth. And he says to everyone, um, he reads that bit in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news. And he, he reads that out to them and they're like, oh, yes. And he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in his hearing. And they're like, in, in your hearing, and everyone loves him. They're eating his words up. They're like, yes, our savior is here. And then he says to them, just when he's got the whole crowd, don't you know that when Elijah was here, God didn't send him to any of the Jewish people He just sent him to this foreigner widow. And though there were many lepers in Elisha's day in Israel, the Lord didn't heal any of them. Just Naaman the Syrian, the outsider, the foreigner. And the people listening to him in the synagogue, like his aunts and uncles and relatives, I don't know what, they take him out and they try and kill him. Right then. The ministry of Jesus was nearly 14 seconds long. But he slipped through the crowd and got away. And the reason is we don't want it to be about them. We don't want it to be about the others. Sometimes we do because we want, you know, once they change, once they repent and admit that they were wrong all the time, then we want it to be about them. But the scandal of the gospel is is God has way less boundaries than us in terms of who he wants to minister to. Just like how the, the nativity story opens and, and, um, and who comes to visit for thousands, traveling hundreds of miles to come and see the newborn king of the Jews. Some random astrolog- astronomers, astrologers, both. Maybe they were both. Let's just say both. Either way, not Jews, not people who follow the law, not people waiting for the new king. They are the ones who go and visit Jesus and who see Jesus. And all the holy people don't go and visit him. They just try and kill him. But it's just these foreigners who come. Isn't that interesting? And for us as a church, I think we need to keep seeing that. God's focus is always beyond just us. Um, this week, I was particularly, well, in fact, for the, for the past few weeks, as we've been thinking towards Advent and kind of what Advent is going to mean to us as a church this year, our real conviction is we want to talk a lot about peace, the, the peace on earth, as like the angels say to the shepherds, isn't it? Um, and 
Um, I found a few weeks ago, the last Christmas sermon that Martin Luther King did before he was killed was a sermon all about peace on earth. And it's just stunning. I, just Google it, Martin Luther, Luther King Christmas sermon or something, and, and read it through. Or you can even listen to it. It was recorded on YouTube. Mind-blowing stuff. So I've got a few quotes from Martin Luther King because you can't go wrong quoting Martin, Martin Luther King. Um, but he said this in the Sermon on Peace, where he was like, here's what we need to learn if we're going um, to live in a world of peace together. He said, some, some, one day, someone should remind us that, even though there may be ideological differences between us, the Vietnamese are our brothers. Now, in the 60s, that was harder to believe than it is today. Um, now we're okay with them. We're cool with them. The Chinese, oh, I didn't give the Chinese a capital C. Um, sorry, Chinese people, you do deserve one, um, are our brothers. The Russians are our brothers, and one day we've got to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. In Christ, there is neither, oh, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. In Christ, there is neither male nor female. In Christ, there is neither communist nor capitalist. In Christ, somehow, there is neither bound nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. He said this. He said, either we must learn to live together as brothers or we will perish together as fools. Isn't that profound? That one of the things the gospel wants to do is to undermine our sense of us and them, of us versus them, of there being another person who is the problem and they need to sort it out. Nuh-uh. It's for everyone. This is for everyone. It crosses race, it crosses tribe, it crosses class, it crosses nation. And all those boundaries are just, when Jesus comes, he just sweeps straight over them all, doesn't he? Male, female, Jesus doesn't care. Jew, non-Jew, Jesus doesn't care. Religious, not that religious, Jesus doesn't care. This good news is for everyone. It's like um, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's, uh, Ephesians is kind of Paul's theology of the church to the church. And he writes to them and he says, those of you who were once called the uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision have now been brought near. And, and God's creating one new man where, the, where you created boundaries that keep you apart. God is undermining them all in Jesus. Isn't that so good? So good. Great. So, but... The good news carries on in this passage because it says that there's going to be what, what that kind of sense of brotherhood and unity and international um, unity is going to do is, is this, which is really good. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. I love this passage. Wouldn't that be cool? I love the fact that the weapons aren't just burned and destroyed, they're redeemed. The weapons of death become tools for life. Isn't that beautiful? Um, that, that's the hope that, that God has. And I, you know what? I, this, is, this is a real, genuine, real world hope of the Bible. This isn't just allegorical. This is actually a hope that God has for the world. This is actually something that God wants to do in the world. And it's not just for us here, it's for the whole world. Nation will not take up sword against nation. And not only will there not be war, there won't even be training for war. There won't be the capacity for war. What this is is like, it's like talking about there won't be any soldiers prepared to go to war if there was one because there won't be the possibility of war. There won't be a nuclear program. Until we don't have a nuclear program, we're not there yet. 
we're a long way away. Until we don't um, equip ourselves and plan for war, we're not there yet. There's no chemical weapons sitting in barrels somewhere. There's no defense budget. Wouldn't that be great? No defense budget. No need for a defense budget. No need for fear because the option of war is closed to us. Martin Luther King, again, he put it like this. Wisdom born of experience should tell us that war is obsolete. There may have been a time when war served as a negative good by preventing the spread and growth of an evil force, but the very destructive power of modern weapons of warfare eliminates even the possibility that war may any longer serve as a negative good. He said this, We have experimented with the meaning of nonviolence in our struggle for racial justice in the United States, but now the time has come. For man to experiment. (laughs) That's my typo, not his. With nonviolence in all areas of human conflict. And that means nonviolence on an international scale. Wouldn't that be great? Haven't we yet realized that all war does is perpetuate war? Like, you think about the war on terror. Okay, I'm not, I don't want to go into the complete. Argument, should we have responded, blah, blah, blah. But after September the 11th, 2001, um, some countries went to war in some other countries. And the number of dead is astronomical from the war on terror. And the number of civilians who died as a response. And we do not see it. It's like we still don't see it. It's like we do not see that the cycle of war perpetuates the cycle of war. And at some point, something needs to come into the story, or in this narrative, something needs to happen in Jerusalem that's going to break the cycle of violence on an international scale. What could possibly break the cycle of violence? Well, the prophet Isaiah said this. He said he saw a day when every warrior's boot used in battle, will be fuel for the fire. He said every, every garment rolled in blood will be fuel for the fire. In other words, we, we're burning up. We don't need our armor. We don't need our swords anymore. And he says, here's what's going to make the difference. For to us, a, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called, oh gosh, here we go. Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, and... Prince of what? Prince of peace. We need a prince of peace. We need a son to be born that's going to be a prince of peace. And when the angel, we've already said this, when the angels visited the shepherd on the night of Jesus' birth, the thing they were just so excited, so bursting with, is this means peace on earth. It means peace on earth. Something about this Jesus is going to interrupt the cycle of violence and bring peace on earth. And we see this in Jesus' life and in his death. When on, his, on the cross, the myth of violence as a tool to achieve anything in the world is totally undermined. The worst empire, no, well, the most that empire can do is kill someone. But love is still strong. The most that the violence and the evil of the world can do is put Jesus on a cross and display him for all to see. And in that moment, love conquers. In that moment, Jesus looks at those who kill him and say, Father, forgive them. Not, Father, bring this back on their heads. But, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they were doing. And that's the reality in all human conflict. 
is there's this ignorance to it. We do not know what we are doing. And we need the crucified Son of God to come and on the cross declare all military power void. But the power of love, the power of reconciliation, the power of redemption is lifted up. I love it. It's just so good, isn't it? There's so many ways of looking at the cross. Like it undermines that whole notion that, hey, if I kill that person, my problems will go away. It's just not true. There is no country in the world that if we win a war against them, our problems will go away. It's just not true. And the cross undermines it. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The cycle is broken. And yet, (laughs) we look at the news. Rats. We're not there yet, are we? And just like the people of Israel, we've got this hope, we've got these promises, and we're in exile because we, it's not fulfilled yet, and we're called to be a people of hope within it. But then lastly, um, lastly, there's this promise as well. This one. I'll just read it. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. There's this sense that, yes, it's about international peace. Yes, it's about global peace. Yes, God is going to do something that, that brings all men together as brothers. Wow, beautiful, stunning. But it's also for you. This is where you come in. It's also about your day-to-day life. It's also about us not living in anxiety. It's also about us being able to make ends meet. At this time of year, um, for a lot of us, it's time of great celebration, isn't it? But for a lot of people, Christmas brings home the painful reality of day-to-day life. Like if you go to the food bank, I think the usage at the food bank at Christmas goes up loads. And it's because Christmas brings an extra kind of stress layer to people who are struggling to make ends meet. And so again here, um, it says actually there's going to be enough. I love this, this picture. Every man will sit. By the way, it means every woman too, just, just to clarify. Every person will sit. There's this kind of relaxation to it. There's this at-easeness to it. And no one will make them afraid. For those of you who were here a few weeks ago, chapter 2 critiques those in power for taking the vineyards of those who are powerless. And it's saying, now that whole dynamic is gone. This is going to be peace internationally, peace personally, and peace as brothers all over the world. And yet, and yet, and yet, we do not see it. I don't see it in my own life. I don't see full reconciliation with everyone. I don't see total uh, peace of God in my heart all the time. I still get anxious. I don't see God's provision in every person's life yet. And so we are called to be, and this is where Advent really hits home, isn't it? We are called to be those who live in hope, in exile, who live in expectation, that God is doing something new, that he's building a kingdom, and that the, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. There's this verse in, in the book of Hebrews um, where it says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Jesus, but we see Jesus. That's really how we're called to live. We do not yet see everything in subjection. One day, the reign of God will be fully fulfilled and there won't be any more war and there won't be any more hate and there won't be any more victimization and there won't be any more oppression. And we don't see that yet. But what we see and what we fix our eyes on is Jesus. Is this reality of this guy who transcends all racial prejudices and all um, gender preferences or whatever, you know what I mean. 
who doesn't see those things, who sees straight past them. We see this guy who, in the, who, with the full force of an empire against them, doesn't, resolve, doesn't resort to violence, but instead to peace and to love. We focus on him. And we focus on him when there's stress in our families. And we get to be people who begin to bring in the reign of Jesus into those situations. We focus on him so that when there's things that we need to step into and bring the light of Jesus into, we do that as people who live in hope. We see Jesus. We do not see everything subject to him, but we focus on him. That's really our whole job. Just focus on Jesus. Focus on the one who brings reconciliation, who brings redemption, who brings peace. One of the verses that really kind of got us going on, on this theme for Advent of, of, of the peace of God coming and being and reigning on the earth was, um, do you remember the story of Zechariah? Zechariah? Zechariah. You don't know either. That's good. Um, we'll call him Zechariah. <clears throat> Excellent. Um, I'm talking about the Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. There's a few in the Bible, and they're all quite different. Um, but the father of John the Baptist, this is an old guy who's lived for his whole life hoping to have kids and never being able to. Um, and he's kind of part of the priestly class, um, and people would have really looked down on him and his wife for not having a kid. And, and one day he's in the temple serving the Lord, and the Lord sends an angel to say, hey, by the way, I'm going to give you a son. He's going to go before the Lord in the spirit of Elijah um, and prepare the way for him. And it's really exciting. And Zechariah's like, that's too good to be true. Um, and because God doesn't want him saying that out loud, he stops him saying it out loud for nine months. So um, shuts him up. And then when the baby is born, there's this such elation that comes from Zechariah, um, and he prophesies over his baby boy. He looks at this little baby, um, who's going to be John, uh, John the Baptist, and he looks him in the face, and I'm gonna, I don't want to get it wrong, so I'm just going to look it up. Um, it's Luke, I think it's the end of Luke 1, for those of you who want to look. Um, he says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Beautiful, the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. Isn't that stunning? To guide our feet into the path of peace. If you want to write poetry that good, just be quiet for nine months first. To guide our feet into the path of peace. And really, that's what the Lord wants to do in his church, isn't it? He wants us to be instruments of his peace, instruments of his compassion, instruments of that breaking the cycle of violence, breaking the cycle of hatred, breaking the cycle of uh, us versus them. And instead, this beautiful reign where the kingdom of God is established. And what it looks like is peace on earth. Isn't that cool? Um, right, Nigel, what do we do now? This is me crashing. That was a good crash. Um, okay, what we're going to do... Sorry? Yeah, turn me off and on again. Um, I th- well, I'd quite like to do prayer. Because I feel like le- we should pray for peace in the world. 
that, would that, that wouldn't be an out-of-order thing to do with it on the back of this. Um, so are, are you guys happy to get into groups? Or if you're not happy to get into group, what you need to do is this. And just pray personally, or at least pretend to so no one talks to you. Um, but maybe get into groups of three or four and just pick a couple of those situations. Maybe when, you, when Nigel shared um, something earlier, a situation around the world um, was particularly on your heart. Like, There's so much to pray for in the world where we need the peace of Jesus um, to come. Um, for example, Yemen is currently the world's worst humanitarian crisis. There are 22 million people who need help in Yemen at the moment. Um, and so maybe rather than selling arms to Saudi Arabia, we could be praying for peace um, for that nation. Amen? Um, uh, so let, just, that's one example. There's so much to pray for. Um, so get into little groups, three or four people. Have a look around. And if you make eye contact with someone, that's the Lord's will. Um, and maybe try and include someone. If there's someone around you who looks uh, like they don't know anyone, just involve them. Or maybe ask them if they want to be involved and allow them to not be And let's just pray for the peace of Jesus to come in our world uh, and to be the hope of the world.